Welcome back to episode 167 of No Challenges Remaining. I'm Ben Rothenberg. We are very delighted to finally be able to bring you this episode, uh, closing the loop on the Maria Sharapova case, which we first talked about when she announced it in episode 145A back in March with Richard Ings. And we have him back on the show today to bring the whole thing full circle and get you back up to speed Apologies for the lack of episodes over the last weeks. Uh, we've had a couple delays with planned episodes like this one, and also uh, some unexpected travel. Uh, hello from Korea, by the way, Anyong. But we'll be back to as normal a schedule as possible and playing plenty of catch-up uh, to give you all the numbers of episodes we may have skipped over in this past uh, couple weeks. So, without further ado, here is Richard. And obviously, for those of you who don't know, background is not in this episode uh, directly, Maria Sharapova got her ban reduced from 24 months from the ITF to a 15-month ban from CAS. And you can read the full decisions on those on their various websites. We'll have links to that in the description, as well as with uh, my interview with Maria uh, for the New York Times last week in Manhattan. So without further ado, here is me and Richard. Very delighted to be joined once again by Richard Engs to sort of close the loop on the podcast we did about Sharapova's positive test with, with him for the first time when we heard about it after her March announcement. Richard, thanks for joining us again. Yeah, look, thanks for the invitation. Uh, yeah, I just first off wanted to get you to uh, talk again, just remind people of your of your sort of credentials and why people turn to you for questions about tennis and doping time and time again. Uh, your past work, and then also uh, say up front that you did have wind up after our podcast having some more uh, direct involvement in how this case played out. Yeah, look, I'll make that disclosure to begin before we get into the podcast that uh, I was approached by by counsel for Maria Sharapova um, after the podcast that we that we previously did, and asked to review the material of the case. And uh, I'm very careful about being involved in athlete defence approaches before tribunals. But in this particular case, looking at the evidence, I felt that um, there, were, there were questions uh, to be asked and I felt that I could make a contribution. So I was an expert witness for Maria Sharapova at, um, at her ITF tribunal hearing and also a, a witness at the, um, at the CAS hearing in terms of making a written submission to the panel. Hmm. Were you, I guess, were you surprised at all to, to find, up, find yourself in that role? Because just thinking back to our first chat, I remember sort of I was being more of a, a devil's advocate in, in sort of in her on her side of things, you know, saying how why would she have known this change, you know, things like that. And I think that's sort of if I remember correctly, the some of something of the role that you wound up taking in the trial was just talking about the notification procedures and how they might have broken yeah. down. Here. You can just talk about I guess more fully because it's in the it's in the ITF report pretty clearly. But for those who haven't who don't remember that paragraph of it from uh, from June, you can go into what your sort of position was. Yeah, look, I, um, I, I rarely get involved in anti-doping cases. I mean, my background is on the establishment side of anti-doping. I ran the, the anti-doping program and the anti-corruption program for the ATP tour from uh, 2001 to 2005. And then after leaving the ATP, I came back to Australia and I was the chief executive officer and chairman of the board of the Australian Sports Anti-Doping Authority, um, implementing uh, Australian government anti-doping policy across all Australian sports. So I've, I work on the establishment side, but from time to time, you do see cases 
where um, sanctions which potentially could be imposed could be disproportionate to the degree of fault that a, that an athlete could have. And, and in those sort of cases, I'm I'm quite interested in getting involved because what I'm looking for is the fairest possible outcome and the proper application of the rules. So, so looking at um, this case, then, what did you think would be a fair way to apply the rules for Maria, given uh, the basic facts of this case, which were that she you know, had taken a substance for 10 years, um, switched status, unbeknownst to her. I think everyone seems to agree that she was unaware of the status change, whether she should or should not have been. I don't think that's in dispute. And then that she you know, continued taking it into 2016 and essentially failed the, the very first test she took after the change. Yeah. Yeah. Look, I mean, one of the interesting things about about this case is that there's there, there's no doubt that Maria Sharapova committed an anti-doping rule violation. Yeah. Um, a, a prohibited substance was found in her body. Um, in the course of competing at an event, she tested positive. She's committed a violation. So that's that that's an absolute given. But once you've committed a violation, there's a range. There, there's a range of consequence depending on the facts and background and, uh, and matters involved in the case. It can vary from a warning at the lowest end through to a maximum of four years. That's a very wide range of possible sanction. And in this particular case, meldonium has been extremely controversial. Um, since the beginning of January, there have been several hundred athletes across many sports who have been declared positive. Yeah. The the World Anti-Doping Agency has gone back and, and revised its procedures, and many of those athletes have just been given a warning. So so based on that and the poor communication that was involved in educating athletes around the world of this significant rule change, that's what motivated me to, to raise a few questions and become involved. Now, that was obviously a, a big part of the initial hearing and the appeal was just evaluating how good the ITF communications were, how thorough they were, how lacking they might have been. I guess, what what leads you to assess that these were indeed poor communications in your estimation? Well, you know, in, in October every year, there's a change to the prohibited list. And the World Anti-Doping Agency puts it up on its website. And uh, the, the purpose of doing that is to let stakeholders around the world know that they also need to communicate it. There are, there are hundreds of sports that need to communicate these changes and, and literally millions of athletes that need to be made aware of these changes. And, and normally it's pretty routine. But the issue with meldonium was, was very unique and required a, a unique and more enhanced set of communication from WADA and sports. And it was unique because meldonium has been permitted for use by athletes for more than a decade that there are many, many, many thousands of athletes likely using meldonium and using it completely legitimately and completely within the rules to the 31st of December last year. Yeah. So when you've got a change like that of, of that magnitude and that significance, then just whacking something up on a website and sending out a bulk email is just not going to cut it. And that's what the tribunal also found in this case. Now, the cast tribunal, you mean, is that right? Yeah, the CAS Tribunal, yeah. Yeah, no, I, I just remember seeing something, a contention from Stuart Miller, I think at some point in, I think, the CAS decision, that he didn't think more notice was necessary because the, the number of players taking meldonium or athletes taking meldonium, I don't know if it was just tennis-specific, was thought to be pretty small because it was only 6% of athletes. But to me, 6% seems like an incredibly high number 
to be taking a substance and changing the status. I mean, looking out for those 6%, not looking out for those 6%, excuse me, uh, seems to be pretty uh, neglectful. I think that, you know, that, that I, don't, I don't know what the numbers are for other permitted substances, if, what other currently allowed ones compared to 6%, but I can't imagine it's too many. That seems, even though it's a single digit percent, it seems like it's an incredibly high number. Uh, for, yeah, uh, for. And, and, and look, one of, one of the things in anti-doping as an anti-doping administrator that you don't want is you don't want to have a positive test and someone turn around and say, well, I, I, I just didn't know, you know, and, and certainly athletes have some responsibility. Mm-hmm. But on the flip side of that, sports and WADA also have a responsibility to make sure that they've made every possible effort to get the, the, the rule changes and particularly major rule changes into the into the hands of athletes who are going to be affected, and and that's what didn't happen in this particular case. Now Maria Sharapova was found to have committed a violation, which was right. She was found to have a degree of fault, which was also right, but she didn't have the full degree of fault that was found by the ITF tribunal and the CAS tribunal correctly ruled, in my opinion, that her her fault was reduced, and that's why her ban was reduced. Yeah, let's go, let's go into that. I guess first, what were your thoughts on the initial? Two-year ban that was handed out by the ITF, uh, and I guess, and I guess in particular, some of the what struck me about that not so much. I think looking at the at the rules, especially after it came out, I understood where they would have landed on that. Um, you know, starting at four, working their way down to two. Um, I, I sort of see why two would have been the initial, especially if they knew on some level. We'll get to this later. If they knew it would be reduced by CAS potentially later on, but it did seem. Like there wasn't necessarily much wiggle room in in there in terms of fault or not fault, and they weren't going to be the ones to concede that they were at fault. I'm rambling a bit here, but um, I guess in terms of the in terms of the ITF decision, I guess what do you make of that first decision? And then also more specifically, some of the the what I think it can be fairly called you know sort of vindictive language that was used in it. I mean, I remember it it ended with someone with something saying that she was the sole author of her own misfortune, which I thought was a bit over the top. Yeah, look, I mean, obviously I disagreed with the outcome of the ITF tribunal, but, but but my view is one thing. The most important view is the view of the Court of Arbitration for Sport, who, in their judgment, just a week or so ago, they also viewed that there were some significant flaws in the decision of the ITF tribunal. And, and, and this is quite troubling, because this is not the first time that an ITF anti-doping tribunal has has erred, has put in place a sanction disproportionate to the to, to the facts and the degree of fault that an athlete would have. We've we've seen it in several other cases involving tennis players over the last couple of years, where CAS has reviewed a ITF panel decision and found that it was an excessive sanction put in place and reduced it accordingly. So there, there, there's a pattern here, and it's something that the ITF um, certainly needs to have a look at and, and take on board. Yeah, that was going to be one of my later questions. We'll get to it now. What do you think explains this pattern? Because it has been very consistent. I think it's six straight uh, tennis cases that have been reduced upon being taken to CAS, uh, most famously, obviously, Sharapova, as well as Troitsky and Chilich. And it's a very reliable pattern here. ITF goes harsh, CAS goes softer. And I guess there's a couple of different ways to look at it. Uh, there's a few different possible explanations for this. One is that ITF is too harsh. Number two is that CAS is too lenient. Number three is that somehow these cases get strengthened upon appeal. You know, they they find better ways to argue the cases potentially by the time they have more time to have gone through the system once. Or 
some other explanation that's a combination of those or something? I, I, where, do you, where do you come down on why this pattern, this very consistent pattern of different sorts of um, arbitration, where do, where do you think that comes from? Yeah, look, I, I don't think you can point a finger at the ITF. Mm. The, the ITF is the prosecuting party. They're presenting their evidence. And, you know, in the case of the, the Maria Sharapova ITF tribunal, the ITF presentation of evidence was uh, was very general. They basically left it in the hands of the of the ITF tribunal to make a decision on what the sanctions should be. Um, so you really can't point the finger at the ITF. But what's very clear is that the the, the ITF panels are taking a, a harder line on what consequences should be than what CAS panels are ultimately taking. And and my experience is that CAS panels tend to get it right. Mm. They tend to get a very good balance between the applicable law, the facts of the case, and understanding the nuances that not all anti-doping rule violations are created equal, that there are there are degrees of fault and there are facts behind issues and there's accountability not just by the athlete, but also particularly by the sports and the governing bodies in terms of how those violations potentially transpired. I guess overall, what is your thought just now in terms of looking at the possible penalties that were laid out by the rules? Um, and this doesn't just have to do with Sheriff's case, but maybe more the rules in particular, or rules in general, rather. Um, what Do you think that the tennis punishments as laid out by the ICF are too harsh? And I, and I ask this because I was listening to a, a sort of non-tennis-specific uh, podcast with Tony Kornheiser, who's a general sports ESPN you know, yodeler on any topic. And the day of the cast decision came out, he they did a brief segment on Sharapova, and he was asking, you know, if they showed that she was not an intentional doper, as the cast decision laid out, why wouldn't she just get time served as is? I mean, why even 15 months? Um, it, it does seem like, compared, especially from an American lens, whether you think this is good or bad, the, the punishments we have for more clear doping violations in professional baseball and American football are much uh, more lenient than tennis even for this one where they're saying there's no intent to have knowingly doped. So so do you think that overall that 15 months as as it came down or a minimum of 12, as I guess it would have been, um, is, is a fair amount or do you think it's still too much or not enough or just judging on that sort of time frame of it being roughly, you know, 10 or so percent of her career that she's missed because of this? Yeah, look, look, it's a good question, and it's it, it's really difficult to compare tennis, which is a WADA code compliance sport, with some of the U.S. professional leagues. You've got completely different rules; they're not compliant with the WADA code, and and the sanctions that are put in place in uh, in in most professional sports in the U.S. Well, all professional sports in the U.S. are substantially less than what you'd find under the WADA code. But in the case of Maria Sharapova, she committed a violation. There's absolutely no doubt about that. Right. But her degree of fault, um, given the circumstances, given the fact that meldonium was totally permitted for use by any athletes any way they wanted to use it for more than a decade, and then the rules were changed and she returned a positive test literally a week or two you know, after that rule change, strongly suggested that her fault was at the lower end of the scale. Now, 12 months was the minimum, and the CAS panel ruled that she had a little bit more fault than the minimum fault, and they gave her a 15-month ban. I, I think it's a reasonable outcome given the facts of the case and 15 months 
is a very significant ban. Yeah, no, definitely. That's what I'm saying. An elite professional tennis player. You lose your entire ranking. You you miss numerous Grand Slams as sponsorships and, and Grand Slam prize money. It's a it's a very, very big whack for inadvertentness and, and carelessness in terms of using a substance that was that was now banned. No, I guess no, let's just go to the sort of talking about her comeback. How how do you think that Maria's ban and her having once her time is served and she returns the tour, how do you think and obviously people are gonna make up their own minds about this, but how do you think she should be received by the tennis community? Uh, now and I guess once she comes back, do you think she should there should be uh there can be or deserves to be any sort of cloud hanging over her from this uh ordeal? Well no, I don't think there should be a cloud and, and the reason for that is that I mean firstly when this matter came up, Maria Sharapova was was up front. She got in front of this issue and, and went public with the whole thing and and imposed a voluntary suspension on herself, remembering the tennis has no mandatory suspension, so she she was a voluntary suspension where she where she you know she's set aside from competition. Um, the second the second thing about it is that through two tribunals that you know where the decisions are, are on the public record, all the questions that needed to be asked by the tribunals and by counsel have been asked, and the answers are there in black and white in the um, in the decision documents. And Cas in particular went to great pains in its decision to point out that this was not a case of a player being a cheat, that this was a case of a player who inadvertently used a substance which had just recently been added to the prohibited list after being permitted for more than a decade. And and that is the, the basis by which the, the tennis community and her fellow tennis players should accept her back into competition. It was inadvertent. She served a sanction, a significant sanction, but the tribunal found that she was not a cheat. And I guess that's something, some nuance and some clarity, which I think is inevitably, perhaps sadly, going to be lacking in some of the you know writing and thoughts about this. There, there was this Maria played in a uh, in a world team tennis charity exhibition match in Vegas, I guess earlier this week. And, I mean, it's an exhibition league to an exhibition match, so it could not possibly be a, a less sanctioned event if it wanted to be. And there was this um, column that came out from a writer for The Telegraph in the UK named Oliver Brown, blazing hot takes here, saying, Maria Sharapova's teeth-grindingly inappropriate lovin' was nauseating and does tennis every discredit before going on to call her a tarnished, incorrigibly entitled swan. So aside from what kind of bird... You think she is? I, I mean, I think that's. I, I come down on the same side as you that that this is something where the key thing is that she was not found to be intentionally trying to break the rules at all. And but I, I think that's an important sort of clarification that maybe gets buried too deep in in the discussion of this uh, this whole case. And maybe and it happens with every with every case. We still see it with with Chilich. Um, some people. Um, referring to him as, you know, being a past doper, even though if you read any of the details of that case, it becomes pretty clear there was nothing of the sort uh, proven. Yeah, look, 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 absolutely. I mean, um, the the word cheat is very liberally used in these sort of anti-doping matters. Um, but I've got my own definition of of a cheat in anti-doping, and it's one that I've used for the decade that I've been working in this in this segment. And and a cheat is someone who knowingly and willingly uses a prohibited substance in full awareness that prohibited substance is, is banned for use in competition. Um, 
Now, there are, there are athletes who fall into that category, and there have been tennis players that have been sanctioned who have fallen into that category. But some of the names that you've listed there, Maria Sharapova and Cilic, they do not fall into that category. Um, these were cases of anti-doping rule violations, but of a more inadvertent nature, where it was carelessness and lack of attention to detail that resulted in a banned substance being in the system. And that's the reason why, in all of those cases you've listed, the CAS Tribunal significantly reduced the sanction in proportion to the reduced degree of fault and the fact that there was no deliberate intent to cheat. I guess, what do you think should be the lessons for both the ITF and, I guess, also players from from Maria's case? I mean, because she talked about making, wanting to make sure this didn't happen to anybody else. Uh, what sort of systems or changes or improvements, reforms, whatever, um, do you think can or should be implemented after all this? Yeah, look, I, I think there's definitely some learnings for everybody concerned. There's no winners that have come out of this. You know, Maria Sharapova didn't intend to use a, a prohibited substance, and she did, and she paid a heavy price. The the ITF um, doesn't want to be in a position where it's it's prosecuting tennis players, and they found themselves prosecuting tennis players because of the degree of communication to get this critical and and a very significant rule change out was not communicated effectively. Um, so there's no there's no winners on any level. So for, for the ITF, the, the 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 learning is that it is very very important to put in place an effective measurable communication program of major rule changes that that whacking something up on a website and sending out a bulk spam email with an attachment is not sufficient there needs to be more of a compliance obligation to make sure that players are aware because it's not just the maria sharapovas who need to be aware of these rule changes the tennis anti-doping program applies right down to the challenger level it applies right down to the satellite and the futures level Mm -hmm. there are tens of thousands of players that need to you know be confirmed as having been notified of these major rule changes and that's just not happening at the moment and that needs to improve do you think that just on the sort of more uh litigative side of things that the i I remember sherpa's lawyer suggested at some point i think sherpa mentioned this to me as well when i when i had my interview with her um that they had hoped that they had wanted to just take the cat the case straight to cast and just bypass the ITF trial altogether, knowing that the outcomes of it were, they thought, not independent. Um, do you think something, a change to the uh, sort of appeals process or legal proceedings to get that enacted, to make it so this clearly harsher tribunal is somehow not relevant, so it doesn't waste everybody's time and money going through this one stage, it's time and time again getting overturned? Do you think that's a, a feasible uh, thing to have happen. Well, I think I think it is beyond time, not just in tennis, but but globally in the world anti-doping or the anti-doping system, to look at this issue of what we call first-level tribunal hearings. Um, it's been an issue with these ITF matters. It, it's been a big issue here in Australia mm. with several domestic matters here, which which had a local sports tribunal hand down one decision only to have it completely reversed and overturned by uh, by an international CAS panel. What, what, what's really important in these matters is that the tribunals hearing these cases are seen to be and are arm's length from sport. That um, There's no contention that the ITF panel, I, I don't believe 
it was biased. Um, I don't believe that at all. But it's not viewed as being arm's length from tennis. And I know when I worked at the ATP that I had the responsibility of appointing the ATP anti-doping tribunals. And whilst we appointed the tribunals to keep them independent, there's always that fear in the back of your head that how will this be perceived when the decisions are coming out from these tribunals? So having those first level hearings completely arm's length from sport is the way to go, not just in tennis, but across all sport. Hmm. Yeah, definitely. Um, I want to ask also about a couple other things that have come up in, in the time since we last spoke in terms of anti-doping. The most directly related to Sharapova, I guess, is the Lepchenko case, um, who Mavara Lepchenko was finally revealed in September, uh, I believe September, yeah, also tested positive for meldonium. It turned out in Brisbane, so before Maria even, and was not tested at the Australian Open, but then tested positive for diminishing amounts of it all the way through, uh, I think, March, maybe even into April. But she... Unlike Maria, did not come forward with a positive, with a proactive statement of "Hi, I tested positive. I'm leaving the tour for these reasons." But very quickly after her return, whispers started, and she refused to talk about any of it um, until finally she put out a statement. I, and that includes like several, lots of direct questioning from me, uh, Nuremberg in Paris and in uh, the U.S. Open, and just steadfastly refused to acknowledge any of it. And in the midst of that, uh, the ITF announced, and it seemed to be Lachenko's case seemed to be sort of the straw that broke the camel's back on this one, that it would no longer, it would now be announcing all provisional suspensions, I believe, um, voluntary and involuntary ones, just to have more transparency. Uh, what, do you, what do you make of that sort of, that sort of change? And if you think it will help tennis um, avoid the silent ban whispers that, you know, have been around at various levels of conspiratorial thinking for quite some time. Yeah. Look, look the, the, the wider code gives sports flexibility in terms of announcing what, what are so-called provisional suspensions. Um, there are some sports that do it. You know, cycling is, is such a sport, and I, think, I believe athletics as well. And there are many sports that don't, and tennis is one of the sports that historically has not announced provisional suspensions. Um, I, I've held a position publicly and privately for more than a decade that not announcing provisional suspensions in tennis is just simply crazy. It's just simply unworkable because you need to have a rule in a sport that you can apply fairly to every player in the sport, irrespective of their level. And I'll give you an example. Imagine you've got a Wimbledon semi-final and a, a positive test result comes back from one of the participants in the semi-final from a few weeks before, and there's a mandatory provisional suspension. Right. The ITF would have no choice but to explain to the world why that superstar athlete is not turning up for that Wimbledon semi-final. And if you are forced to do it in that stage, then you should do it at every level. Yeah. And it's really gratifying to see the ITF recognise this deficiency in the rule and move to a mandatory announcement of provisional suspensions. And I think there have been just so few cases, um, and, I, and I assume this provisional suspension you know, does things like checks against existing TUEs and things like that. So there have been so few before before giving the suspension. So there have been so few cases that I think would have had provisional suspensions and ultimately shown, you know, no ultimate penalty of any kind. Um, so no anti-doping rule violation, rather. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, the only time a provisional suspension is imposed is after TUEs have already been checked. So all those things have been checked and and determine whether there's a TUE or not, and it's been ruled to be an adverse analytical finding, 
and it needs to go to a tribunal to sort out, you know, what if any consequence should be imposed. Um, so it, it is great to see the, the, the ITF recognise the deficiency, long-term deficiency in in the rule in that regard, and to move to uh, to a mandatory announcement that'll that'll get rid of uh, the the innuendo whenever a player is off purportedly with an injury in the scuttlebutt in the locker room and and in the public and the media that well you know they they must be provisionally suspended it'll end that that circus really once and for all yeah definitely and the other you mentioned mentioned to you is there any other thing that happened uh, in the tennis the majors and that happened in the tennis sort of, and worldwide sports. Uh, anti-doping landscape, or one of the major things. It was a busy year for anti-doping, but uh, was the revelation from these hackers of these TUEs for various athletes who were competing at the Rio Olympics. And um, that also, I guess, raises some questions of transparency um, in terms of should or shouldn't these TUEs be made public. The counter-argument is obviously these can sometimes be addressing very private you know, medical issues, um, what, what do you think people should make of, of that, uh, of the revelation of all those TUEs, um, several in tennis, um, without getting specifically into the Maddox-Sands case, which I wrote about, which I think is sort of the messiest one of all of them with the back and forth. But I guess, do you, what do you think people should make of, of the TUE revelations there? And is there anything to, to learn from those uh, that new information, which previously had been kept pretty hidden? Yeah, look. I mean, most of the substances on the banned list are medicines, yes. and many of those medicines are, are, are medical miracles, which will, you know, overcome uh, serious or, or medical conditions that that people will have. And there should be no way that just because you're an athlete, you are unable to take necessary medical treatments even when you need it. So there's a system in place, the therapeutic use exemption system, and and on paper. It's a very good system. You know, it's got independent review by doctors of requests by tweet, treating physicians and submitted to WADA who can review and overturn a therapeutic use exemption. On paper, it's a good system. But as with any system, the devil is in the detail of how you monitor it and how you ensure compliance when there are literally thousands and thousands of TUEs being given across hundreds of sports and hundreds of countries all around the world every year. Um, so the system itself is needed. Uh, TUEs should be allowed for athletes to use, but they've got to be strictly monitored and strictly controlled. And I don't believe in making the details of TUEs public. That does seem to be the consensus among people in the industry, for sure, just out of medical privacy concerns would trump uh, the need for transparency. If, if there were, and I think they, and I think the thing of TUEs on that front is it's kind of a tricky situation. I mean, if you have somebody applying for asthma medications, it's very different than somebody replying for, I don't know, like a herpes ointment. I mean, there's a degree of privacy, I feel like, that athletes would concede that can come into these uh, 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 TUEs. And so, but I think probably better to be safe than sorry on that, or not safe than sorry, better to be um, uh, accommodating of of people's want for medical privacy than, than not. Yeah, and look, I, I, I think there's a level of transparency, but a need to protect individual medical privacy. And, and what I mean by that, and I'll, I'll use, I guess, Australia as an example. In Australia, TUEs are actually granted by an independent government body. It's a government agency. It's called the Australian Sports Drug Medical Advisory Committee. It's, a, it's under an act of parliament, and it reports through to the, to the federal, appropriate federal minister. Um, they put out an annual report every year, and in that report... They detail by sport how many TUEs were received, 
how many TUEs were denied and how many TUEs were approved. And they also provide a list of all the substances where a TUE was granted um, in particular sports, you know, for the last calendar year. So you can you can go and have a look down that list and see what substances were approved. And they they range from asthma medications through to EPO. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's important to have a degree of transparency, but we, the public, don't need to know that an athlete is suffering from severe depression. We don't need to know that an athlete is suffering from AIDS. We don't need to know that an athlete is suffering from cancer. We don't need to know that specific level of detail, but we need to be assured that there's an appropriate system in place with the right checks and balances and auditing to ensure that TUEs are legitimate and verified and uh, can be relied upon. I guess last thing, just to wrap up, I, I assume you did you see the um, outside the lines report from ESPN about that upping? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I saw that. Yeah, just I guess wondering what your your thoughts are because that was obviously a pretty critical look at things. You mentioned EPO, which reminded me of saying they're not doing consistent testing for EPO and maybe some of the other and HGH. I think might be one other sort of more common use perform or commonly thought to be used performance enhancing things these days uh just overall do you think that the i guess what, what you made of that report and do you think that tennis what do you think is the state of tennis's anti-doping measures broadly right now yeah look i mean over the over the last couple of years the tennis anti-doping program has improved significantly there's been there's been myself and a number of other commentators who've been very critical of aspects of the, the tennis anti-doping program. And there's been a lot of reform. There's been more money put into it. There's been more testing put into it. There's been more blood testing and out-of-competition testing. Um, we've seen some really major improvements. Um, but the, the the issues facing global anti-doping, and I include tennis in that category, is that there is still this phenomenon which we refer to in the industry as menu shopping. And what menu shopping is, is when a sample is collected from an athlete, it is not analysed for every possible performance-enhancing drug. A decision is taken, normally for financial reasons, to only test for a subset of banned substances. Um, I think that is a huge hole in the global anti-doping system. It's a a hole which is permitted by WADA. Um, And I'll give you an example. WADA has guidelines in terms of the percentage of samples by sport that need to be tested for human growth hormone. And tennis is on that list, and the the percentage rate for tennis is at least 5% of samples must be tested for human growth hormone. By way of comparison, tug-of-war is also on that list. It's at 10%. Hmm. Now, you know, we know the issues of human growth hormone with... With, a, you know, with one particular tennis player, yep. and uh, I would suggest that it shouldn't be 5% of samples, it should be 100% of samples that should be tested for human growth hormone. And equally with EPO, um, this is a huge hole that's allowing uh, banned substances to potentially be used by athletes in all sports and go undetected. And I think that's probably something, even though it's a monetary increase, it's probably something that could be easily covered by, say, having by not increasing grant slam prize money for just one year. I think you could probably make up that difference pretty quickly. Yeah, look, look, there's no doubt that if you were to test every sample collected from every player for every banned substance, that it would add to the cost. Um, but I personally would rather have a few, a few less samples 
but have every sample tested mm. for every banned substance because it, it it's a pretty simple concept really. When you take a sample from a player, you don't know if they're using a banned substance and if they are what banned substance they're using. So how can you decide what you won't test for? Yeah. You know, it it'd be akin to a roadside alcohol breath testing service station where you know, you only test for five brands of beer and, and two brands of spirits. You know, you, you need to test for everything. And this is a huge hole in global anti-doping that that does not occur. Yeah. Thank you very much, Richard. This was uh, a, a great to have you back on. Anything else you want to mention before I uh, let you go? I didn't cover maybe. Nah, look, I, no, I think that was good, mate. I think we covered a lot of stuff. All right, thank you very much, Richard. I uh, appreciate it. And hopefully no no positive tests we have to talk rely on you for again anytime soon i think everything is sort of <laughs> yeah. off the docket right now in terms of doping now that lepchenko's case has been finally resolved and sharapova has a conclusion so hopefully smooth sailing yeah. uh, well hopefully everyone's getting brought to justice it should be but hopefully not necessary yeah. in the future uh thank you very yeah, much yeah no worries mate enjoy your uh, career talk to you later Thank you very much, Richard, for coming back on, and thank you guys for listening once again to this episode of No Challenges Remaining. If you want to follow along when you're not listening, you can do so by liking us on Facebook, facebook.com slash ncrpodcast. Follow us on Twitter, at ncr underscore tennis. Richard, also you can follow at at r-i-n-g-s-a-u. He's on Twitter there and often has the anti-doping sort of news and thoughts from around the world as these things trickle in, so he's a very worthy follow for you there. Send us questions for upcoming episodes, no challenges remaining at gmail.com. Also subscribe to us on any podcasting platform of your choice, including iTunes, Google Play, etc., and leave us reviews there. We appreciate that. Uh, the executive producers of No Challenges Remaining are Pancha Resendez of tennisballs.com and Tao Woolley. I think that's it. Goodbye from Korea. See you soon. Good